So last week, I think I pretty well took a sledgehammer to a golden calf that many of us perhaps still hold in the church, this idea of tithing. Um, you know, it's an idea that we hear at least every week in a lot of churches when we talk about the offering. And it's one of these default um, passages we go to, Malachi 3.10, you know, which talks about bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse so that you can be blessed. And it, it it's understandable because it's it's a very straightforward teaching. We, we pull out our Old Testaments and it talks about giving a nice, clean 10%, um, just bring your tithe in and it's an obligation, it's biblical, it's what you have to do as a Christian because the Bible teaches us to tithe. Um, and it all seems very simple, very straightforward. Um, this is how the church gets money and this is how we we just take care of the financial needs of, uh, of what we're doing here. So it's all very straightforward. But as I pointed out last week, it's problematic to say the least to teach tithing because it drawn from the Old Testament, and the Old Testament simply doesn't apply to Christians. Now, more than that, when we're teaching Malachi, it's very clear from that passage that um, we're also teaching that Christians can be cursed if they don't tithe, um, which is a problem because Jesus clearly died for it to destroy all the curses. And so to say to a Christian, you must tithe or you're under a curse, is to say that Jesus isn't powerful enough to break that particular curse, the only way that it can be broken is if you buy your way out of it with your 10%. So all of that is problematic. And forgetting about the fact that if you're going to teach the Old Testament, you have to teach the entirety of the Old Testament. It's not a pick and choose your favorite teachings and leave aside the other ones. All of it comes with it. You you have to be consistent throughout. James talks about this. You can't, you, if you teach one part of the law, you have to teach all of it. So if you're going to insist on tithing, then you have to insist on everything else, circumcision, kosher, Sabbath, the, the whole lot. Um, so it's it's a problem. All of it is a problem and it is, well, it's just inappropriate and I it's really blasphemy to teach it to, to a Christian. So I don't want to just leave it there though. That that that's a bad place to leave things because for I think for a lot of us that leaves us out in the wind of well what where do we go from here? What do we do? And we know that at the very least we do need to talk about money. We do need to talk about the financial needs of our churches at the very least. And so what does the New Testament have to say about that? Where where does where, where do we go as Christians if we don't have tithing to fall back on? And so that's what I want to look at this week and next week. I want to look at some of the very explicit instructions that the New Testament gives us about our finances and, and what our obligations are, and, and particularly how much. What does the New Testament say? I mean, again, 10% of tithing, it's simple, it's clear, um, it's a nice, easy round number. Um, but what do we what do we do if that if we don't have that as an option? How much? Does the New Testament require us to give? Uh, and so again, I want to come back to that this week. And I want to look at two suggestions that I made last week and or the two principles that tithing, uh, tithing has along with it. Uh, principle number one uh, of tithing was to support the Levites. So the goal of the tithe was to support the ministry. So there was a principle at work in that, which is that the Levites who didn't have any other means of support, who were full-time ministers, needed food. Um, they needed to be looked after. And so that was what tithing was meant to, to do. And then the second principle of tithing was to look after those in the community with needs, those who didn't have a means of production. So the widows, the orphans, the, the foreigners who didn't own land, thus didn't have the means to produce food, they also needed to be supported. And that was what the tithe was meant to do. So I want to take those two principles and I want to show that they actually do carry through to the New Testament. So looking after the ministry and then looking after those in need. And we'll take them one at a time. So what we're going to look at this week is the way in which the New Testament teaches us to look after our community, our community members, and, and the different ways that uh, or the different types of people 
that it uh, teaches us to look after and also how much. What does Paul actually have to say about uh, how much we're meant to be giving? So that's what we're going to look at this week. Um, stay with me and I, and I really do hope that this will be, will be helpful. So first things first, as with everything that we do here, what's some historical context of the New Testament? Uh, remembering that the New Testament was written in the first century, 2,000 years ago in a time very different to our own. And as we're going to talk about through the life of this podcast and see through the life of this podcast is that how the Christians did church in the first century was very different to how we do things today. Uh, and so particularly when it comes to money, I mean, how much did the early church give? Now, what we know, and I said last week that there is no mention of tithing, and really there's no explicit mention of how much we should give. Now, remembering too that if there were going to be any instructions, they would not be for us in the 21st century, and specifically 21st century living in the West. I mean, the world of the 21st century in the West is very different to any other time and place even 100 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago. So there's no instructions certainly for us, but any instructions then would be to them. What would, you, what would the instructions be and how much for them to give? Well, maybe we have to ask the question, how much did they need? If number one, if the offering is to support the church or to support the the church community then the question is how much did they need uh, what were the what were the practical needs um, of the church now again we think about church today um, a lot of what we give goes towards supporting the church itself um, you know paying for ministry but also paying bills paying for the overheads of the church if you own a building you're probably paying a mortgage or maybe you're paying a lease on a building whatever there's there are a lot of expenses that go along with running an organization today uh, and that's got to come from somewhere so that's going to come from the offering but if we think about it in the first century they didn't have those overheads they, they just simply didn't have the expenses that we have today. For, for a start, they didn't meet in a, in a formal building. Um, it, they didn't meet in a temple. Now, the temples, the, the, the worship of the gods took place in temples and those were expensive buildings, but they were funded by a local patron or by the, by the priesthood, uh, maybe through some taxes, but they, were, they needed funding. But that's not what the church did. They didn't meet in those places. They met in people's houses. Now, those houses were owned by people who owned the house. They didn't owe money on them. So the, the building itself didn't come at a cost. Um, it's, it's, it's like if you have a, a house church, um, y y if you're paying the mortgage on the house and you're getting people over for church, you're not expecting them to pay the mortgage. You just invited them into your house. So there's no cost there. Um, so number one, the place where they met didn't have any cost that came along with it. Um, they didn't have any utilities to pay for because they hadn't invented electricity yet. All right? They didn't have running water. They didn't have utilities. Right? None of that existed yet. And so there was no cost to running the house or running the service because they weren't using anything that cost money in, in the same way as we pay electric bills today. Um, they didn't have full-time ministers uh, they didn't have, now we're going to look at ministry next week, but they didn't have a full-time pastor on staff, at least that we can see, because everybody was to minister to one another. Right? Everyone was just volunteering. Everyone was just turning up to the community and blessing each other, praying for each other, ministering to one another. So there was no ongoing costs there to pay for, for ministry. Again, we'll, we'll look at that in a bit more detail next week, but there's, there's not in the same way that we have things today. And I mean, the only, the only cost that the only really recurring cost that this community had was the meal. Now, if you remember that when they come to church, it's to do a meal, someone had to pay for that food. Well, everybody would have contributed to that. It, it wouldn't have been on the house church owner to pay for everybody to eat every single week. That's just not how things worked. Um, the way it would have worked is that everybody would have brought something to contribute. And we see that happening in Corinth where everybody's bringing their own food to eat and to drink. Um, some are coming with lots of food and they're coming early and getting drunk and having lots to eat. And others are coming later on who are very poor that have got nothing. Uh, and so 
Or one another suggestion is that people would all contribute a little bit of money and they would use that money then to buy the food that was required to, to have the meal for that particular week. So the only real cost then is the food. But again, everybody's bringing a little bit to contribute and that's what becomes the weekly meal. Now that's obviously right there, not a financial commitment. There's no value. There's no, well, you need to give 10% so we can all eat. It's just bring a little bit so that you've all got something to, to share in. But as far as I can tell, that seems to be the only cost to the church. So there's no needs for actual money, right? There's no, um, there's no sort of uh, various costs that everybody needs to pay money towards to, to fund. So number one, how much did the early church give? Well, there doesn't seem to be very much because there were no practical needs in that way. Um, so that, that sort of eliminates a lot of the expenses that we might think about today. But again, there were other types of needs and there was other types of giving that Paul does teach about. And so that's what we're going to look at now. What are some of those other um, requirements or some of those other things that the uh, Christians were, were expected to give towards? So where we see the clearest um, commands or clearest instructions about giving really come from 1 Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy, as you know, is a much more practical uh, book. It's more, um, it's more really helping to establish a church. First um, Timothy is written at, at the very least at the end of Paul's life, maybe even sometime after Paul. Maybe there's a lot of suggestion that Paul wasn't the author of this, um, that it was maybe one of his students writing later on. But the idea is to really establish um, a, a bit of a legacy. It's a bit of a, okay, for the next generation that's coming after Paul, what should church look like? The church is growing by this stage. So this is sort of getting towards sort of the second half of the first century. Um, what's church going to look like now Now that the, the apostles are, are dying out? Uh, so it's a very practical set of instructions then for, for how to do things. And so it's written to Ephesus. We talked a bit about this one when we looked at uh, women teaching. And so it, it does have quite a bit to say about, uh, well, finances, but really just about support. Um, supporting those in the community. Again, we talked about this last week with tithing, where one of the key principles of tithing is to support those who don't have the means to support themselves. And so what the New Testament communities are doing is continuing on this Jewish practice of, of looking after one another. Um, but what we actually notice when we look at the first century is that this was just simply a common practice for everybody. So the, the, the first century is a time when um, you don't have any sort of government support. Now, we, we take for granted today that if you fall on hard times, you can turn to government assistance in various forms, and that will help get you through or maybe even for you know you, long periods of your life that you're, you're being looked after by government support. So we just take that for granted, that there's always some sort of government means to take care of things. But that's something very new in human history. That was that role was always taken on by the church. For, for a long time before there was any sort of government assistance, you expect that the local church would be the people that would be looking after you if you, if you have um, whatever sort of need you might have. That's the role of the local church in the town. And that's the role they always sort of performed. Well, this goes all the way back to... The, to the origins of the church right back to the first century um, but it's, it's it's from a context where you again you don't have uh, a broader government support to turn to when you fall under hard times you have to turn to your friends and to your village you have to turn to those around you to look after you and this is why community is so important in the first century or in the ancient world because community isn't just where you find friendships and and meaningful relationship communities where you find financial support when if and when you you need it which is going to at least be at some stage in your life and so you've got to turn to your friends you've got to turn to your family to look after you um what they talk about what the, the way that they refer to this is as a network of exchange what you have is that your community your group is there in in those hard times when you might have any an emergency need everybody can chip in their own little bit 
And all those little bits put together might just be enough to get one of the members of that network through a particular time. Um, so this is, this is a very common. This is just how you do things. Now, there are other ways to receive support um, where you might turn to a patron, somebody who's wealthy in the city and, and they will, uh, they've got all of the wealth so they can look after a lot of people. And that's, a very, that, that's the main practice that you find. Um, patron, they're, they're, in every town, there's going to be a, a number of patrons and everybody will be clients. Everybody will be dependents on these patrons. Uh, we're going to look at that a little bit next week when we look at the ministers. But as a common way of being taken care of, you are part of these networks of exchange, which again, it's why community is so essential for everyone to be part of, to be part of a family and then to be part of a broader community because you need to be with people because if you don't have these groups, if you're not connected to people um, and you fall on hard times, that's it, you're done. There's, there's just You've got no one to turn to at that point. You're just simply going to die and that's, and that's just how it is. So what the church then becomes in this context is a network of exchange. It becomes um, the equivalent to other types of networks that you might find within the village, within your towns. It fulfills primarily that role. Um, it, it just becomes this network of exchange. And so what we find in 1 Timothy is this command to continue on that work. And so he says here in 1 Timothy 6.17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, to put, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. That's an important term. We'll come back to that. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So this idea of good deeds, it's it's sort of a catch-all phrase for um, what a patron does. So the patron is the one who has a lot of wealth and they, they give out of their wealth to look after other people. And what they get in return is the honour of being the one who supports all these people who have needs. So they get a lot of public honour and, um, and a lot of esteem for being the ones to do that. And so the Christians are no exception. If what, it's very clear that if you've got some wealth, you function as a patron. And so what Paul's saying is that don't stop doing that in the church, right? If there's rich people amongst you in your community, remember Paul's not commanding this to all people in all times, in all places, in the sense of everyone who lives in Ephesus, for example, where this is written to. He's only specifically talking to the Christian community. So all of these instructions are going to a very small and specific group of people. And so what he's saying is to anyone within the church community there that is rich, that as just has extra financial means, be a patron to your community, to the immediate community of the church, right? So just function as you normally would a patron. So in other words, what they're doing is simply adopting the, um, the principles and practices of the ancient world, that is to look after your local community, that is the people within your immediate church, right? And so that, that's quite clear, right? That's, that's, that still applies today. Um, as a church, one of our functions is to look after the other people within our immediate church. And we do that with a variety of means that primarily money, but depending on what the immediate needs of uh, of a particular person or the community are. This is talking about short term, maybe one off, somebody falls on hard times, they just need some help to get through this particular season, whatever the short term need might be one of the responsibilities of the community is to help do that. Now, again, this could be money, um, but it could be money that you have to spend on something that is going to help that person in a different way. Uh, and, it, you know, it could be a hard time or it could just be a particular circumstance that requires some assistance. You know, I, when I think of this, I always think about these times when we've had children. We've got four kids and every time we've had children, people in the church would cook meals um, just because, you know, we were so busy doing other things with this new baby. Um, the church, very kindly, people in the church would, for a couple of weeks, bring a meal over every night. 
And so it wasn't that they were giving us money. We we have we had enough money, but they you know the time to cook and all of the things were required for that. Um, they were trying to relieve that burden, and so it's it, this again could take a number of um, a number of different forms. But the idea is that we we are obligated as a community to see each other as brothers and sisters, which is what the New Testament is very clear about, and when we see needs, to be able to meet those. Now, this requires, of course, that we are part of the community and that we have relationship with the community. Um, We need to know when people are going through these hard times so that we can be there to support in those uh, when that's required. So that, that is one of the requirements. And so part of our giving is for that purpose ideally this is what presumably what our giving goes towards maybe there's not an immediate need now but if i'm giving to my church then i'm presuming that some of that can and will be used in these particular circumstances so number one there is a requirement for us to be willing to give in various forms to help those in the church that does certainly carry through from the old testament it doesn't say how much it doesn't say in what specifically the main the the um the actual thing is that we're giving is but it's very clear that if we have wealth if we have uh the means to give then we are required and obligated to do so in in a very in some sort of capacity now there's another uh longer in set of instructions about giving in first timothy which talks specifically about giving to widows and it's a really specific, very practical set of instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy uh, in order to do this. Um, and we might, the immediate relevance to us might be, well, we look around our church and think we don't have a lot of widows necessarily. And again, we don't have the context that they do. We, we've got plenty of support and, you know, it's the, the situation of widows today is going to be quite different to what it was in the first century but there is a again a principle that we extract from this which is people in our communities who have long-term requirements long-term needs where they don't have any other means of support um, in these circumstances so this one is a again it's it's quite specific but let's go through it and just sort of see if only just to unpack this particular passage because it's quite challenging i think in in some of the instructions that it gives uh but again putting it back into its context let's just see what it has to say so 1 timothy 5 3 it says give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need okay um right off the bat really clear about there are plenty of widows but not all of them are needing or deserving of support now you go well hang on a second why why be so picky why be so fussy well you have to always keep in mind that the whole church community, the whole world of the first century is living at subsistence level poverty, right? They just don't have, they've got barely enough to look after themselves and their own families, let alone other people. You know, we, we, we live in such an affluent time in the 21st century West that we don't really think about excess because we've just got so much. It's just, it's easy for us to find excess. Whereas for these guys, they don't have excess anything. Um, they're lucky if they get one or two meals a day and that's just their day their life from the day they're born to the day they die there's just not that much resource in the ancient world and so um, when you are talking about giving in this time you're talking about giving out of effectively nothing right you just don't you've again you've barely got enough for yourself let alone for other people and so these whole networks of exchange that we talk about um, it's not that you're giving big pools of money it's like well i've got this tiny little bit these two mites like this lady the the widow that we talked about last week it's worth nothing but if all of us put in our tiniest little bit there might just just be enough to scrape together to make something but again we're still not talking about very much and so the very little that you have you need to be careful with and so what it's saying here is if you're going to select a widow to support we want you to do that, but we need to be careful about who we support because they need to be people that have just simply no other options available to them. So he's he's talking then here again about these widows who are in need. Well, what's the context too then of widows in the first century? Well, um, first of all, you know, we've talked about marriage before, but when you're married as a woman, your primary purpose of being married is to replace your father, 
right? So your father raises you. He's the one who provides for you up until the age of marriage. And then it's the job of the husband to take over because you're not going to be working. You're going to be having children for the rest of your life. Uh, and, And so there's no job for you to go to. You don't have a career. You're at home with the children. And so somebody has to feed you. And that's going to be the job then of your husband. He provides for you so that you can keep bearing him children. And that's how this these, that's just simply how marriages work. But what happens when you lose your husband, which is going to happen a lot because everyone dies young. I mean, the average life expectancy is about 35. Uh, you're going to lose your husband before yourself because your husband's always much older. He's, he's generally always going to die before you. Um, you know, there's, there's a good chance that you might die in childbirth, but if someone's going to die, it's very often going to be the husband, if, not, if only just because of old age. So the estimates – now, so what happens then if you lose your husband, you've actually at the same time very likely lost your network of support. Um, your, your husband was the one who was looking after you. And so his connections, all of the people that he's in this network with are the ones who might, you might f- fall on for help. Well, if you lose him, you've, you've lost connection to all of that as well. So what we find then is that there's going to be a lot of widows who need support. In fact, they estimate probably 30% of the adult women were unmarried widows uh, in the ancient world, 30%. That's, that's an awful lot of people. So if we're talking about in Paul's churches here, Paul's and Timothy's churches, even if there were a hundred adults, and even if only them um, were, were let's just say there was a hundred adult women in the church, maybe two hundred adult men, two hundred adult women, we're talking maybe thirty people there who are widows. So that that's a good number of people. But at the very least, what we're saying is that there's always going to be a good, uh, there's going to be a handful of of widows within every church community. So this is real for everybody, every church that this would have gone out to, that there were going to be widows there. So then the question has to be, well, we, we want to support them, but we have to be careful about which ones that we support. Now, why did they do this in the first place? Well, they adopted this directly from the church in Jerusalem. If you remember in Acts 6.1, where there was an argument over the distrib- distribution of food to the widows. Uh, and so... Clearly, they were already doing this in Jerusalem, and they were doing it in Jerusalem because that's how the Jews have always been. This goes back to the practice of tithing. Tithing was prim- was primarily to look after the Levites, but also to look after the widows, those who were landless, those who needed support. So they've taken that directly from Scripture and continue on the practice of looking after widows. Now, again, a time before any sort of government assistance where the assumption is that if you're a widow and you have no network of support, you're going to die. That is just how things are unless you've got family to turn to. So the church has picked up this practice and then that's carried through now to Ephesus where where this letter has been written to, but they just didn't have as much resource. Um, they, They had plenty of widows but not enough money to support them because they had barely enough money to support themselves. So what Paul's saying here is that we want to do this but we have to be careful about who we're supporting, we have to make sure and be discerning that we're supporting only the people that have simply no other means of support. Um, those are the ones who we can with the very little we have support. So then how do we select them? What are the requirements then? Well, he goes on, verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. So the very first option you have is to be absorbed back into your natural family, which is the requirement for everybody. Again, we talked about this. This is why you have children. They are your means of support when you can no longer work. And especially if you become a widow, you need to be looked after by your kids. That's why you have children. And in fact, in a time when family is so central, to not look after your parents is an act of impiety. It's, it's, a, it's almost it's blasphemy to not look after your parents. And so that's who you're first going to turn to. You're going to go back to the, to the family. And um, now, a couple of different options here. Number one, she could still be a young widow that has, and her father may still be alive. That's rare, but it could be the case that she could go back to her father and then be remarried. So that's one option, but that's not going to be as common because you're not going to get that many adult fathers or fathers of adult children um, that are there to take care of things. 
So then you look out, you get you turn to your children. Now your children might be very young, not old enough to work. And so then you're in real trouble. Um, now kids get to work pretty young, you know, maybe eight, eight years old. Um, but that, that may be an option um, if you've got younger kids. But ideally, hopefully you're going to turn to kids that are a little bit older and they can be there to look after you. They can be there to support you. Now, what if they, you don't have any children? Or what if your children just simply don't support you? Well, now you're in real trouble. Or if you've got adult children or your children have died, like there's any number of different possibilities here. But the first point of call needs to be the family. Now, if, you, we, if we can't, if we have to eliminate them as an option, well, then we have to look at some other criteria. So it goes on in verse five. But with the widow who is really in need is left all alone, uh, puts a hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an, unbel- um, than an unbeliever. So even within pa- pagan society, it's expected that you're going to look after your family. And so if you're not doing that as a Christian, you are the worst of the worst, right? So just let's make sure that we've eliminated that as an option, that the family, there is no family there willing to support these widows. Okay, what are we left with? Well, he talks about two different kinds here. First of all, the widow who lives for pleasure. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about somebody who sees the church as a place to get a handout. Now, that is unfortunately going to be common. That's common in all human societies, but it's, it's going to be true in the ancient world. We, we talk about patrons and clients. One of the... Um, one of the downsides, one of the negative practices was that somebody would say, look, I've got two choices. I can go and do physical labor and make, you know, barely enough every day to support myself and my family, or I can go and find a patron, do nothing, but still get looked after. In other words, I can become a toll bludger. Um, I can work really, I can work and make money, or I can just get somebody to to look after me for nothing and I, and I don't have to do anything. So that, that, that unfortunately happens. That happened in the church as well where they saw the opportunity of free food and so they come and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, for sure, Jesus, ooh, yeah, yeah, um, where's the food? All right, so unfortunately that happens and you can see it would be very easy for um, a young widow who has other options available to her looking at the church going, hey, those, those guys take care of widows because like nobody else does that. The only other people who looked after widows were the Jewish community. Now, these Gentile women are not going to just walk into a synagogue and say, hey, can I be looked after? That They're just not going to be welcome in there. But in the church, it's a different story. So it's very easy to see how some people could come in and just go, look, I don't want to have to work, so I'm just going to get you guys to look after me. I'm a poor widow. Can you take care of my needs? So what Paul's saying is eliminate them as an option. Look at the these widows who um, have other options, and we'll see them in a moment, they're not the ones you need to be looking after here. The ones you need to be looking after here are the ones who are really in need and you know them because the only other option they have is God, right? They've, all they have left is to turn to God and ask for help. Well, here's where their prayer gets answered. They're saying to God, God, can you help me? You're God's answer to that prayer. So get along there and help those particular ones that have got simply no other options apart from just turning to God for for their support. So he goes on, verse 9, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So 60 or older, well, that's going to eliminate um, a lot of options because very few people live that age, to that old age. So if you do happen to live beyond 60 and you're a widow, which is going to be you, – you probably lost your husband just simply through old age at that stage, right? You're, you're a pretty rare category here. So if you have made it to 60, you've become a widow, um, well, number one, that, that significantly shortens the list of possible recipients. Uh, so that's – that, that at least makes it a very few people that we have left to support. But what it's suggesting is that she's 60, she's too old to remarry and she's too old to have children, right? No one's going to marry a 60-year-old widow. That's just not an option because she can't have children, 
The, the reason you get married is to have children. She can no longer do that. And so her options to go and remarry, because if you can't turn to your family, well, then what do you need to do? You need to find somebody else to marry. You go back, you can't go back to your family, so you create a new family. Well, she can't do that. No one's going to marry this woman. Uh, and so number one, she's over 60. That's rare. Number two, she's because she's over 60, she can no longer look after, she can no longer raise children. But more than that, not just any 60-year-old, she needs to be an exemplary wife. She needs to have been an exemplary wife. She needs to have been a Christian, um, somebody who's been part of the community for a long time, who has proven herself as uh, a, a godly woman. She's got a, a long history in the community of being godly, primarily being a good wife, but also having herself demonstrated her good deeds, having been a patron herself, having supported the community, having been participated in this act of giving to others, um, giving support to others who've had needs through the course of her life. And now this is her return. Uh, she's she's done this for others and now it's others, other people's turn to do it back for her, right? So she's getting back what she's invested back into the community. And so this is just God reciprocating back to her for a life of good deeds and a life of being a good wife. So we're eliminating now again down to a very, very small number of people. You go, oh, the church is so stingy. No, it's not. They just didn't have anything to give in the first place. And so the very little they have to give needs to go to the ones who've got, who are in absolute desperate need. Now, again, compare this to the rest of the world that does absolutely nothing about this that would leave this 60-year-old woman to die in the streets. This is a huge step up when we talk about forms of charity and forms of support uh, for those around us. So then he goes on verse 11, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to remarry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Now this is a bit strange. Like why, what is, like it seems to be quite, I don't know, misogynistic, but not really. Like what is going on? Well, you've got a young widow here in this case and she's looking at her options saying, look, I can get remarried. I, maybe I can't get back to my father, but I could get remarried, but I, I don't want to do that. What I want to do instead is to devote my life to serving Christ. Right, a very noble sentiment. All right, I want to become a full-time minister. Um, you know, I'm available now. I don't have a husband. I can I can devote myself to taking care of other people in the church. So a really nice idea, a very noble, sentimental uh, sort of idea. But the problem is, if they're not self-sufficient, okay, if they don't have any means of support, which they don't, because they've devoted themselves to this sort of full-time ministry, they're going to be reliant on the church to look after them. Somebody's going to have to feed them. Um, it's not going to be a husband. It's not going to be their family. They're not working. They're not making any other money other ways. Somebody's going to have to feed them, and that is, of course, going to be the church. And so the question then becomes, is this worthwhile? Is this something that we want to invest into with the tiny, tiny little bit of resource that we have? Well, Paul says, look, there's going to be a problem with that because eventually the assumption is going to be that she's going to want to remarry. Uh, well, number one, what it's presenting to the to the rest of the world, to the outsiders, is this idea that we're trying to undermine the the primary prime primacy of marriage. Marriage is just absolutely essential, and part of the whole Roman ethos is that everybody needs to be married, making children. Now, again, it doesn't work out in reality that way, but if you're as a community being perceived to be undermining that culture, then that's going to be a problem. That's going to bear negative consequences. That's going to make people see you in a negative light. And so you want to avoid that. We, we don't want to be seen to be unnecessarily challenging cultural elements um, that are neither here nor there in some cases. So what, what he's saying here is... Um, for these particular women, it's it's not the best look. It's not the best um, situation that we want to present. So, number one, let's not sort of let's just not go that way. But more importantly, she's going to eventually desire to remarry. Um, that's just going to happen, right? I mean, this is just the assumption will be that she's she's a young woman, and eventually she's going to want to have a husband again. Well, in those cases. 
Uh, and again, the, just it's a t challenging passage, and so this is just sort of the best sort of scholarly assumption of of what the the concern here is is that she's going to want to marry a husband who's not a believer or she's going to marry a husband who's not a believer. Um, there's just not many other options out there. So she's going to get remarried. She's going to marry somebody. She's made this devotion to Christ. She's, she said, I want to go into full-time ministry. And then later on, she changes her mind and says, I want to get remarried. He's not a Christian. Well, then in that case, he's going to have to adopt the gods of her new husband. You move into this guy's house, my house, my gods, my house, my gods, my rules. Right, so you're going to worship the gods of this particular husband and you're going to abandon your first pledge, which is to Christ. So it sort of sets up this scenario where she's very likely going to sort of fall away from this initial pledge or this initial decision that she's made. So that's probably what the concern here is. Um, the best bet is just to simply get remarried, ideally to a Christian husband, um, but at the very least you've got other options that don't require you to be a burden to the church or you know this this idea of becoming a full-time minister and the church supporting her is just not the best option that's not the best uh use of the very limited finances that you have then he goes on in verse 13 still talking about these same widows besides they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house and not only do they become idlers but also busybodies who talk nonsense saying things they ought not to so what is also of concern here is that she's not connected to a household through marriage so she's a widow, she's not married, she's not connected to a house, remembering that these are house churches. So every house is a small church community. Now, if you're not married, you're not part of a household community, you're not part of a one particular house church, you're just going to float between all the different house the, the different house churches. And again, it's a bit like today, you know, you, I go to church, but I go to a different church every week. Well, are you really going to church? Are you really part of a church? You know, you go to church, but it's a different thing to go to the same church every week and be part of that community or just float between churches and never really commit to anything. So this is a person who's just sort of going around to the different houses and, you know, just you've got plenty of time on your hands because you're in quote unquote full-time ministry. And so what are you doing with your time? What are you doing in all of these houses? Well, you're just chatting and gossiping and, and carrying on and this can become problematic. Um, they're not ultimately they're not contributing to one particular um, community group or one particular church. They're just sort of going around and with no real purpose, um, and potentially opening themselves up to all sorts of sort of false teaching. Remembering that one of the key problems in First Timothy is the presence of false teachers who are preying on precisely these kinds of women. Remember we talked about this when you've got these women who are false teachers who, um, you know, Paul says just learn doctrine and then teach. Well, who do you think they're picking on? Well, they're picking on exactly these kinds of women, these women who are not connected to a, to a local house or a particular house. They've got lots of time on their hands, floating around here and there and gossiping and chatting and carrying on. Well, that's exactly who these false teachers are going to prey on. So that sort of connects back. I mean, some of the, the women that Paul was rebuking and saying, don't teach until you learn what you're talking about, are very likely some of these widows uh, because it's, it's all within the same letter, all within the same context. So the practical advice then, he goes on verse 14, so I cancel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact, some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. So the solution then is for them to marry and busy themselves with the duties expected of a wife. That's just what's expected in Roman culture. Everyone needs to be married, making children and creating households. So just do the normal thing. We don't want to be the sort of community that seems to be, uh, from an, to an outsider's perspective, undermining the role of the family. Right? We just don't want to be that sort of people. So don't do that, okay? Um, let's just not be those sorts of people. Verse 16, finally, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So what seems to have happened here is that there's a network of women who are taking on some of the burden of looking after these other widows. Um, there seems to be sort of a small group that are, that are doing this. Uh, and so what 
Paul's saying here is that if that's happening, then just keep it happening, right? Just keep that. That's great. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, again, where's the practical support coming from? Not just in providing the finances, but who's looking after these women? Uh, who's actually, you know, building community around them? They don't have husbands to and family networks to, to look after them. So somebody is providing that community. It's the other women in the church. Carry on. Keep doing what it is that you're doing as a part of the practical support for uh, for these widows. So that's your other type, your other main type of support that the, the community is expected to do, the, the ongoing support. Now, again, we're living in a different time. The Financially, we've got a lot of government assistance that can help. Uh, you, we don't think about widows needing this kind of support. Um, there's, there's life insurance if you were to lose your husband. There's all, you, know, you can go back to work. There's, there's lots of options that you have. But there, there may be people in our communities who do need this long-term support of in some way, shape or form. It's not an immediate need like a, a one-off short-term need. It's, it's a long-term emotional need or financial need or practical need or community need, whatever it might be. There's also this expectation as a community that we shoulder some of that burden. So again, that whatever that might look like, financial, practical, whatever that looks like for you, again, there is that obligation to give, to be willing to support those around us. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. Uh, if you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review. This is really going to help spread the podcast further along. Um, and you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and the other social media that I have uh, connected with this, this podcast as well. You can find the link for those in the show notes. And finally, you might even consider supporting the channel financially. Um, if that's something you might consider doing, then you can find the same or find that how to do that through the same link. Anyway, back to the show. So there's a final type of giving that Paul instructs. And this is one that we wouldn't be maybe aware of when we're reading our New Testaments, but the, throughout all of Paul's missionary journeys, he was taking up an offering for Jerusalem. Um, now, the reason for this offering was that the Christians in Jerusalem had been facing persecution uh, and they'd also been facing some other financial uh, difficulties. And so what Paul was doing was trying to raise support from the other Gentile churches and also in part just to help build some bridges between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. Uh, and so really just to show the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, hey, these Gentiles, we're, we're all part of the same family. So he's been taken up this offering and he says we get a sort of clear instruction for it in first corinthians 16 it says now about the collection for the lord's people do what i told the galatian churches to do on the first day of every week each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when i come no collection will have to be made then when i arrive i'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to jerusalem if it seems advisable for me to go also they will accompany me so this is a really practical, straightforward financial offering. The idea is kind of like the temple tax that we talked about last week. The temple tax was literally money gathered up from the Jewish community to be sent to Jerusalem. So you have to imagine crates and crates of money being carried. I mean, this is dangerous stuff, right? This is this has opened itself to all sorts of thievery and trouble along the road. Paul's doing something very similar, but it's for those other Christians who have needs back in Jerusalem. Now, this is what we would call a missions offering. This is what we would consider as when we're sending support to churches in places that don't have as much as we do. So we still do this one today. So we've got support then, as we've just seen, for the our immediate community, for those who have short-term immediate needs, those who have long-term needs like the widows, but also those in different parts of the world that we'll never meet in most cases. But with our access that we have right now, they can, those who don't have as much as we do can be supported by us because at the end it's our community isn't just the immediate church community that we see on Sunday, but it's all of our brothers and sisters internationally all around the world. We have an obligation, all of us to one another. So all of these things, you know, so these are all very familiar types of giving. These are all things that we're still doing today. Ideally, we're looking after the people that we sit next to at church, but we also have in mind Christians in other parts of the world that we support as well. So we, all of these needs haven't changed. What the tithe used to do carries through to the New Testament. 
And it's ideally what our churches are still doing right now. The church that you're in right now may still hopefully still be doing all of these things besides. So all of that's pretty clear, I think. The question then in, that is remains is how much? Again, tithing is so practical because tithing is a nice, easy, round number, 10%. Just chuck your 10% in and that takes care of all of these needs. But tithing is not an, a New Testament practice. So for us, what does that look like? Well, interestingly, this particular passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 16 has a follow-up in 2 Corinthians, which goes into a lot of detail about how much. That's what we're going to look at now. So when Paul gave that instruction in 1 Corinthians 16, um, it created a whole lot of problems in Corinth. We'll talk about it in another podcast, but the bottom line was some people in the church thought that Paul was embezzling the money. They thought he was just simply stealing it. And so they, there was a whole lot of issues that emerged from that. And one of those issues was 2 Corinthians. The reason we have 2 Corinthians is because 1 Corinthians didn't work. The reason 1 Corinthians didn't work is in part because Paul was asking for money. And so they took his motives as being not for Jerusalem but for himself and accused him of thievery and so then just simply stopped giving to the offering. And this went on for about a year. In fact, there was this huge issue that went on for the next 12 months and Paul finally resolves the issue. Again, we'll talk about it at a later stage. But what we find in 2 Corinthians is Paul trying to get this, this particular offering going again. So he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and they're passages you're familiar with because we always hear them over every offering talk attached to tithing, but they've got nothing to do with tithing. Um, they're, they're, they're specifically to do with this particular offering. However, there are specific principles in these passages that can still apply today. And the principle primarily is how much should we be giving? Because this is actually what the Corinthians are asking Paul. Okay, how much should we be contributing to this particular offering? So it says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, and in this matter, uh, 8 verses 10, he says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So that's referring back to 1 Corinthians 16. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Okay, we're going to come back to that, out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So to the question of how much should we contribute to this offering, Paul, his answer is how much do you have? It's up to you. How much resource is available to you? And we'll start there. <clears throat> so this is the question I've had around tithing. For some people who are exceptionally rich, 10% is nothing. It's absolutely nothing of their of their worth. But what about for the, well, for example, the single mother or the widow who actually has nothing and 10% is what was going to pay for her children to eat? I mean, what do you do in those circumstances? Do we still demand the 10% and, oh, if she doesn't, well, she's under a curse? Like, I mean, is, is she not cursed enough already and now she's even more cursed because she can't give 10%? I mean, what are we doing here? I mean, this, that, that is unbelievably problematic, especially when we consider that the tithe is actually meant to be looking after that particular widow. And yet we're demanding 10% from a woman who doesn't have anything to spare at all. So the question of how much, if we're going to insist on 10%, well, how do you even enforce that, particularly from the ones who don't have anything to begin with? So Paul's starting point for how much to give is how much do you have? What is your what, what value do you have? Start from there. But also, how much are you willing to give? For if the readiness is there, what is your readiness? What is your willingness to... I want you to be part of this, but if you're not willing to be part of it or ready to be part of it, then I don't want to force you to do it, right? It's, it's up to you. Are you ready? Are you willing to do this? And then how much do you have? What sort of... According to what you have not according to what you don't have. So there's the, these are the two measures. Number one, your willingness. And number two, what resources do you have at your disposal? But then he goes on, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, 
But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now that's a reference back to when they were collecting the manor every morning. So everyone gathered enough for their families and no one had too much, no one had too little. Everybody had just enough. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians, who are quite wealthy in some cases, you guys have excess. In Jerusalem, they have nothing. So can you give some of your excess to their nothingness? And maybe one day they'll give back to you out of their excess, right? So the point is not that I'm going to impoverish you to make somebody else rich. If you're impoverished, you're the one that needs help. So the person who's rich that has the excess can give some of that excess to you who has nothing. So that way everybody has enough. The point is everybody needs to have enough. So again, it's a question of are you willing and ready to give and how much do you have to give? If you've got nothing, well, then it's how can we expect you to give? You can't give nothing out of, you can't give something out of nothing. So the measure then, again, willingness and your resources. What do you have available? So he goes on, so I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift. Now, the word here, gifts, is the Greek word eulogia, which literally means a praise or a blessing. So arrange in advance for the blessing, the praise, your act of praise you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift. Same word again, a praise or a blessing, not as an exaction. So whatever you give has to first of all be praise. Not to me, but to God, of course. Are you willing to give? What sort of resources do you have that you can give from? And is it an act of praise? Is it a service to God? Do you look to God and say, how can I be part of this? What can I do for you, God? So it all begins with a heart of praise, a willing heart to give of what you have that God has first blessed you with as an act of praise. So all of this measure falls back on you. It's got nothing to do with 10%. There's no mention of any amount. The question is, what's in your heart to give? So then he goes on. The point is this, and here's our favorite verse. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also... Now, same word, whoever sows bountifully, ep eulogias, literally on the basis of praise or blessing, not um, give stupidly, generously more than you can possibly afford. No, no, no. All of your sowing, all of your giving has to be out of praise. If you sow out of a heart of praise, you will also reap out of that same praise. So whatever you give is going to be given back to you in proportion to what you first give. And so the question is, are you giving out of praise? Are you looking to God saying, God, I love you. I want to be part of this. Here's what I want to give out of this heart of praise. So all of this has to be from us. It's driven by us. The point of how much is that's between you and God. How much do you praise him? How much do you want to be participating in what it is that he's doing? Well, then give out of that, out of whatever resources that you have. But then he qualifies it and he says, and this is the part we always miss. We love the give more so that you can get more back. But then we ignore the very next verse, which says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the irony of this is that this verse is so often used in a 15-minute long offering talk, which is basically guilting everybody into giving more than they can possibly afford. And then the very next verse says, don't do that. (laughs) The very next verse says, you mustn't give under compulsion. And yet, ironically, we're using this verse to compel people to give. It's just, it just blows my mind. So the point is, give out of a heart of praise. It's between you and God. What has God blessed you with? How much of that does he want you to continue on into praising and to giving into this ministry? So then the question is, well, what about what's in it for us? What's our reward? Now, we always talk about the offering, give to God, and God's going to bless you in return. What is that blessing? You know, we talk about prosperity. You know, give an offering and God's going to give you an extra car and an extra garage and an extra house and, and all of this prosperity nonsense that we go on with. What does Paul actually say here about this? Well, 2 Corinthians 9, the carry on from what we just talked about, 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, this verse is very sort of parallel to Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So God's priority for us is not material comfort. He doesn't, God's, he's not concerned with us living in luxury. He's just simply not. I know that bursts the bubble of our prosperity gospel, but it's just simply not God's priority. Because if it was, then for the last 2,000 years, the richest, most comfortable people on the planet would be Christians. But a, a simple look at history will tell us that that's just never been the case. I mean, those Christians who have been martyred in the Colosseum or being crucified or being burnt at stakes, I mean, that that's not comfort, right? Christians who live in impoverished circumstances, as has been true for all of human history, they weren't living in great material comfort. And the reason for that is that's just not God's priority. Um, it's still the case today that there are Christians who are living in absolute abject poverty, and that's not going to change because this, their financial circumstances are a result of the economies they live in. Any blessing we have in the West is because we live in a, pros- a prosperous, uh, luxurious time and place in the world. It's not a result of God's blessing. It's a result of living in, in a great place. So God's priority is not our material comfort. Otherwise, there'd never be a poor Christian ever, ever. But that's just simply not the case. Our pro- God's priority is for us to do his will. Whatever that looks like, wherever we might find ourselves, the priority is for, for us is to do God's will. And so God's priority is to provide us the resources we need to do this will. Whatever material requirements there are, that's what God provides because the result of that is that we do his work. That's his priority for us. That's what God wants to give back to us. And so... He goes on, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. So I ask this question uh, to uh, quite often, what's the most important thing that God could possibly give you? I mean, if God could give you absolutely anything in the world in an abundance, what would it be? And what would the thing you would want most from him? Would it be something material or would it be himself? I mean, what's the greatest thing that God could possibly give us? If God could give you the greatest gift in the universe, what would that be? Well, it would have to be himself. Wouldn't be a new car or a bigger house. It has to be him. And so what God wants to abound to us is more of himself. The more that we invest ourselves into his work, the more of himself we receive. Isn't that the greatest reward? And that's exactly what God wants to continue to pour out to us because that's what we continue to give out the more of it we receive from him. It's more and more of him. So then he goes on, finally, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So the whole point is that God is giving to us so that we can do more of his will. And in giving out more of him, we receive more of him. And in all of this, it's so that the praise can go back to him. So the measure then, what God wants for us in an abundance, is just more of himself. That's it. That's the blessing. That's the ultimate reward. Okay, I've taken a lot of time for this particular one, but let me just quickly finish up. Let's sort of summarize what we've got so far. So then how much then? What is the measure? What is, what is God requiring from us? Well, there's several principles that we've seen so far in this podcast that um, we need to use as a starting point for what it is that we're meant to be giving. Re- remembering that we are required to give, we are required to support the community, our immediate community, and also the international community of brothers and sisters. That That is required of us, right? We all have that obligation. But the que- to the question of how much, if it's not 10%, then how much? Well, here are a couple of principles that we can take from these passages. Principle number one, what you've already settled in your heart. How much have you already decided to give? Not under manipulation or compulsion. When you walk into church to give your offering or you give it online, whatever you do, how much have you already decided between you and God to give? Well, that's between you and God. Anything you're giving beyond that that's under compulsion, that's wrong. Okay, that is exactly what Paul 
tells us not to do. So how much have you already settled in your heart to give principle number one? Principle number two, according to your means, right? What are your means? Again, that's, that's between you and God. How much have you got that you are able to participate with? Okay, that's, again, that's between you and God. So how much have you decided out of the means that you have? And then principle number three, according to an act of praise, are you giving out of a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanks to God? Is it a heart of praise? Again, that's between you and God. Now, so all of this, again, between you and him. Fourthly, according to the needs of the community. Now, this may not be money, but you might come across an immediate need in the church, uh, someone in the church that needs help, and you can support that need. Well, that's your giving. That's part of what it is that you're contributing here. So what are the needs that your immediate community has? How are you helping to meet some of those needs? Again, in whatever form that takes, financially or otherwise, that's part of the responsibility. Principle number five, how much has God asked for? I mean, again, have you prayed about this? Have you asked God, God, how much should I be contributing um, to? I mean, we know that God needs, God is requiring us or he's using us and our resources to build his kingdom. He's made that very clear. So we, we're all going to participate in this. He's given us the means to give in the first place. So the question then is, have you asked God how much you should be giving? Now, if God's asked you to give 10%, then give 10%. If he said, carry on tithing, then carry on tithing right? That's between you and him. But it's not because the Old Testament commanded you to, it's because God has told you specifically, this is what I require from you. But let's just say you're saying, well, I'm going to give 10%, even though God said, I want you to give 50%. You've got a lot of excess. You should be giving 50%. That's what I want from you personally. You're going to go, no, 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 God, I'm just going to give 10% because your word says I should only give 10%. Well, guess what? That's disobedience. God said 50%. You're shortchanging him, only giving him 10%. Oh, but I'm being biblical. No, you're not. You've been unfaithful to the word that God's given you specifically to you to give. And then also, how much has God provided you? What has God given you in the first place? Again, this comes back to the, to the level of your means. How much has God provided for you? He, whatever God has given you, he's given you to serve his kingdom from raising a family through to whatever other needs that you're giving towards. He's given you the resources to do that. Well, then, again, how much has he given you to serve his kingdom? So the point is, and I do need to finish up for you here, but the point is, this is it comes down to be being between you and God. This is what the New Testament seems to be very clearly instructing us. Um, it's not 10% anymore, but there is a requirement, but that requirement is in relation to you and your relationship with God. Well, I'm going to leave it there. I hope that's been helpful. We're going to pick up on this next week and I'll sort of unpack a little bit more some of what we talked about here at the end. I felt like that was a little bit rushed. Um, But then what I want to look at as well is what does that look like for the ministry? Um, what What is... supporting the Levites look like in the year 2023 um, for us today. So anyway, um, hopefully, again, hopefully this has been helpful. Please join me next week as we finish off this series and I'll see you then. All the best.